Wednesday morning, and today we have a special episode, and we're going to have a few of these in the next coming weeks. Dr. John Patrick was at the CMDA conference. CMDA stands for Christian Medical and Dental Association, where I'm sure some of you guys know John from, and we're going to be playing one of those talks today. And today's talk is going to be what living in uncertain times teaches us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way in which you have loved us, especially through your Son. And we thank you for the way in which you love us day by day in so many ways that we often neglect to notice. Forgive us, give us a greater sense of your goodness in everything, for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, just quickly, because someone's asked it, and I think it's probably important, ask me to just go through once more the, the biblical ordering of the goods so that you get it straight when you're talking about ethical issues. The foundation stone is what you will not do. Thou shalt not. Get those right and know why you're going to stop at that point. And if you're a junior and it is heading towards a conflict, you deal with it by asking a question. Before I obey you, may I ask you a question? And then you can say, this is a foundation stone in my life which you want to take away. That will diminish me as a person forever. Do you want to do that? They don't. Not one-on-one. -on -one. They'll do it anonymously as bureaucrats, but they won't do it one-on-one, -on -one, uh, especially if they think it might be recorded. Um, once you have got the negatives in place, you can intellectually reach the positives. Once you realize that the moral world, unlike the physical one, is fixed. But it's complex, so we, our shorthand is the, the cultural story we live within. And in America, you don't realize it, but no nation on earth has had the gift you had of beginning with no, no argument about what good and evil were. And the argument w was from the Jewish and Christian view. Just think of the old cowboy movies. Uh, the good guy always wore a white hat and the bad one a black hat, just so you wouldn't get it wrong. Uh, they're moral tales in some way, and they fitted with the narrative of America. Uh, you're also blessed to be so large because it meant that centralized organizations couldn't keep up because you only had railways to communicate. Uh, the railways also were very useful as they were in Britain. If the internal combustion engine had come first, Britain would not be a, a country of villages it would have been scattered development along the highway, which is what we see everywhere. You're, the worst example being the American Mall, uh, an architectural disaster of the first order. Uh, but So goodness uh, can be understood. When that's in place, you now have a framework for justice. Without transcendence, there is no possibility of real justice. And your question to your uh, as the politics heat up. Who judges the judges? What restrains a judge? The answer is nothing, if he doesn't believe in God. And it's the same is going to apply to positions when killing becomes the order of the day, which it will. Uh, it's going to be important to know what your doctor believes because some of them won't kill you. That can be quite relieving. Uh, we're already seeing examples of people who have died very quickly. I mean, you can see it worse because they've been at it longer. The worst one, the most egregious one I came across was in Belgium, where a professor at one end of the country had a call from the hospital where his mother was at the other end, and he was simply told, your mother asked to be killed this morning, we've done it, will you please come remove the body? That's how heartless it can get. And Whenever you come across it, you need to make it known somewhere, somehow. Not with your name attached, obviously, at the moment, but there are, you do have a lot of organizations that are concerned about religious freedom and the like. Uh, use them, and you have a route into all that area by uh, Far Curlin, who runs the uh, theology and medicine program in Duke, uh, who was uh, a resident I remember meeting him many years ago when he was a young resident 
and we had a two-hour coffee in Chicago. Very serious Christian. He said, what should I do if I really want to help Christians in the medical arena? And I said, well, it's not difficult, actually, but it's hard. Because you're a good internist, I said, there's not going to be any shortage of internists, but the bioethicists are lethal. Uh, I'm sort of grandfathered in, but if you want to really work in that area, you have got to write papers that get published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and that's going to take some doing, but he's done it. And he now has his own program of about 11 people that is entirely concerned with uh, ethics, not entirely, largely concerned with ethics in, in the modern world. So uh, keep an eye on what he does. Just look him up every now and again on by, by Google or something like that, Far Curlin, C-U-R-L-I-A-N or I-N, Alan, I can't remember. Far Curlin's surname, is it, does it end I-N or A-N? Well, I-N, okay, good. You got it, you got, there, there, someone's got something by him. Or you can go and look at it later. Important. And when you've got your ideas about justice straight then, and the importance of judgment after death, then, then and only then is choice acceptable. And the freedom that we have and we need to recognize is the freedom to become what Christ wants us to be, not the freedom to do what we wish, but the freedom to do what we ought, which is his will. So that's the quick review of it again. Um, I think that was the only thing that... Uh, I. It's Dr. Whitney. Uh, explaining again how reductionism leads to the council culture would take away what I really want to do this morning. So the hard answer to that, but the correct one is read Roger Scruton, uh, Fools, Frauds and Firebrands. Uh, start with the last chapter because you'll understand that immediately and then that will make you go back and do the hard work of, if you want to, of learning the history. But today's topic is what do we do? Now, um, most often and most valuably, this is based on talks which I routinely give to medical students just as they're beginning. How do you survive becoming a doctor with your faith intact? The probability is very low, probably less than 20%, and getting lower. Uh, we don't so much lose our faith as cease to practice it, right? And part of the reason of that is the decay of the church. When you kill your first patient, which you've all done, who did you go to talk to? In many cases, no one. That's one of the reasons the suicide rate amongst young doctors is roughly the same as the Aboriginal community. But it's not drugs, it's the job for which you're unprepared. I mean, when I started my, my first job, the guy who had it before me was a very good guy, had committed suicide six weeks in and put his head in a gas oven. Nobody said anything about that to me. There was, there was absolutely no discussion of it. I've had six of my colleagues commit suicide during my career. Not when I was there, but their, their lives ended in suicide, including one who looked after C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis shouldn't have died. He had a benign prostatic uh, enlargement. And by the time his stoicism forced him, uh, no longer carried him through and he went to the doctor, he destroyed his kidneys. Uh, but God knows what he was doing. So, uh, talking to students and telling them what the real risks are, what can you do? Well, could all of you recite Acts 2.42. The central, in one verse, there it is. They continued in the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayers. Those four things are not optional if you're going to survive. They are necessary. Um, we would have some doctrinal discussion of what breaking of bread meant, but 
for the church as a whole, there's no discussion. That is the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I don't, I personally don't see that there can be any reason for not doing it, but that is obviously not true. I certainly uh, live by that process because it's a continuous reminder of the reality beyond the immediate. If you've never suddenly felt during the Lord's Prayer an incredibly different world around you, a sort of taste of what is going to be, then you need a, a longer and more prolonged approach to it. I mean, the opening prayer of the Anglican Communion service, every doctor could use pretty well every day. O Lord, unto whom all hearts are open, so quit trying to deceive me, you can't. All desires known, from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of my heart by the inspiration of your spirit, that we may worthily love and serve you. Now that's a prayer, there's not a wasted word there, is there? Uh, and we have forgotten how to pray, and most of our prayers are better described as supermarket prayers, aren't they? Lord, give me this, this and this, and what's on special this week? Uh, that's not prayer. Ultimately, it becomes, as Lewis says somewhere, the prayer of silence, uh, listening. So, and if you have insomnia, that's the first place to start dealing with this because there's nothing better when you wake up in the middle of the night than prayer. Songs in the night, several Psalms refer to it. Uh, I'm not good at prayer uh, and I miss it out even though I know I shouldn't. But the good Lord is good to me. He usually, in fact, wakes me up at night with the, the same message I haven't heard from you today. Uh, so the first thing is repentance. I forgot. It's hardly an excuse, is it? I didn't forget. I just didn't do it uh, in the right way. And then if you have learned a passage of scripture, preferably you all got good minds. They just haven't been trained. Uh, you're all intelligent. Uh, so you shouldn't be fixing on choruses and single verses. You should want to contextualize everything you read. So get yourself a life text, pray for it. So the tie I'm wearing was given by a CMDA. Uh, I've forgotten who it was who gave it me, but it's got the whole Beatitudes on. It's a kind of witness in all sorts of situations because people say, oh, it's an unusual tie, oh, look, read it. <laughs> uh, we need that kind of focus. For me, it's the Sermon on the Mount, has been for years and years and years now. And it, it means that I don't complain about insomnia. I look forward to it. Uh, it doesn't usually last more than about 12 verses. So uh, uh, I, don't, I think I've gone through the whole Sermon on the Mount about twice uh, in my nightly prayers. Uh, so I must have been in deep trouble at that point. Uh, so that's number Two, Acts 2.42, teach it to your children. These are things you do in order to preserve your faith. Uh, get yourself a, a life text and then you'll have a basis for ongoing prayer. The other thing that I learned from Simone Weil, the great and rather bizarre Jewish woman come Christian who was clearly anorexic but brilliant, uh, her, she and her brother used to embarrass her, their parents on the bus in Paris by talking to one another in two or three different languages. Um, and uh, her brother was one of the best mathematicians that France produced and uh, their parents tried to make them normal by taking pencil and paper away from him. So he started doing calculus on the pavement with chalk. So they gave that up. Uh, but she became Christian. She was a very left-wing person. She, she cared about the poor and the working class. She was a klutz, of course, uh, but she went to work in an engineering factory with the ordinary working people who, who tolerated her. Uh, but slowly she came to the truth of faith. And the bit of her that 
rubbed off on me completely, was she said when she first met the Lord's Prayer, what do you think she did? She couldn't stop saying it to herself for two days. She said, there's nothing like it in Judaism. Our Father? And she said, uh, once she'd sort of settled down to try and begin the Christian life more seriously, she made it a habit, which I do too, following her. When you wake up in the morning, say the Lord's Prayer twice before you do anything else. Do it once by rote, so you got that out of the way. And then ask God to stop you somewhere in the prayer. It'll be a different place every day. Suddenly the word will hit you in a different way. Then you use that when you get to a, a moment in the day where you're going to about to waste it in fantasizing or whatever, you know, don't go that way. Pick up on that word. You'll save a lot of time and you'll deal with some of your addictions and the like that way very effectively. Um, I mean, just take the very first word, which every now and again, I get stopped there to be reminded of it. If we wrote the Lord's Prayer, what would the first word be? It would be my, wouldn't it? But it isn't, it's our. And you start thinking about that and all sorts of things happen to you. They change your attitude. And then that has spin-offs. In the children's hospital in Ottawa, um, not an infrequent number of times, one of the porters was a disabled man who'd been a, a child that received a lot of treatment at Chio, and we were in the same church. He's part of the hour, and he would always greet me by Christian name in the corridor. And my colleagues would say, how do you know him? I said, he's, a, he's my brother. <laughs> and, and then explain what goes on. And of course, those people are so important in our world, much more important than we are, uh, because they are out of the mouths and babes of suckling, even though they're grown in, that wisdom comes. So that can flow out of taking the first word of the Lord's Prayer seriously. Try it for a week, uh, and you won't stop doing it. Neither will you stop the next thing, which is when you've done the Lord's Prayer twice, uh, you start your day, but don't wait very long. In fact, I get up and I go to my computer and I click on the Psalms. And I read a Psalm every day. That means at least sometimes I get carried away. Uh, a column is a better idea probably, but just read your Psalms because you need the Psalms but they only work for you when you really know them because you have to know where to go on a bad day. Everything is there in the Psalms. There's at least six Psalms that begin with the Psalmist saying, God, where on earth are you when I want you? And in six of them, he doesn't get an answer by the end of the Psalm, but he's in a different space. That's as, clear, as far as he goes at that point because there's some rubbish to clear out before it's gonna be back to normal, so to speak. Now, a proper Catholic is supposed to read four psalms a day. Uh, that takes you through the psalms several times a year. Anglicans are supposed to do two, uh, and most evangelicals read it every other year, um, and then only selected. Try starting your day with a psalm. And it's another thing that you will soon recognize the value of. And then it becomes a habit and a very good one. It is, as you must have noticed in your Christian patients, the last thing you read as a Christian is the Psalms. If you have a chronic illness, it's going to kill you. You end up in the Psalms almost invariably. Of course, when you're dying, what's on your tongue tells you what mattered to you in your life. Uh, depression is the same. It tells you what matters to you. Your focus of, of depression is usually what is central to your life. So businessmen get paranoid depressions about people, uh, cheat their colleagues cheating on them, etc. You've gone down the line. Um, Christians think they've lost their faith. Uh, no, they haven't. That's just telling you that they have one actually, and you can actually point that out to them if they're Christians. Uh, and, and it's a little bit of help. 
My first um, much beloved climbing partner was a wonderful Christian guy. He committed suicide uh, because he got into the hands of people who said, all you need to do is pray about it. He got a classic endogenous depression. He needed treatment. And he, but he even committed suicide in a Christian way. He didn't want to trouble anyone. So he went right to the end of the electrical train underground system in uh, London and put his head on the third, third lane and electrocuted himself. But he didn't stop the, the tube because it was right at the end. Nobody knew. And I'd lost touch because I was busy and he, uh, just beginning my house jobs. If I hadn't lost touch, he wouldn't have committed suicide. But God knew what, knew what he's doing. He was probably too good for this world. It was just such, I mean, he had only the clothes he stood up in because he felt that there were too many poor people in the world. And Jesus told him, and he should have taken more notice of it, the poor you always have with you. Good quotation for a socialist. We're not going to get rid of this because it's a product of human nature and utopian visions are not possible given our nature. So the next thing to do after that is to recognize what Paul said to Timothy. You need to be a workman who is not ashamed of his work because you can rightly divide the word of God. In other words, you're all intelligent, uh, but is that intelligence showing in your church? Uh, it could do. At the very least, if your church doesn't have an annual talk to the young people's group about sex, sexuality, and sexually transmitted disease, well, now you can't not do that. You're all capable of doing that. Uh, in selected groups, perhaps some people couldn't because they get just too nervous doing what I'm doing now, which is, I'm made for this. That's what God called me to. But that needs to be done. All these little bits and pieces that fit into the whole life that you live and make it more stable. So um, work at it. The next one it was a very important recognition for me that I had to sort out and it was sorted out for me. Uh, as a little boy, uh, I, I was analytical. Uh, I, I drive, drive my mother mad by asking why. And how does that work, you know? And one of the, the church I went to, lots of scripture was read. Uh, we didn't have a pastor, Plymouth Brethren Church, chapel, assembly, as they would say. A wonderful place to be from uh, because you learn the Bible thoroughly, uh, but not with it, without that much organization. I was blessed because um, in, in the early 50s, uh, as we were still uh, recovering from the, the Second World War, and we were a poor family, although I didn't know it. But the brethren idea and my parents' idea of a wonderful way to spend Saturday afternoon and early evening was to go to a Bible conference. And in Birmingham, big city, all the assemblies would take a turn in putting on a conference. And it would consist of all, all biblical exposition in one way or another. There would be a couple in the afternoon and then tea would be provided, which was a good tea, uh, and everybody got to know and all the gossip was exchanged, etc. And then another talk after tea and back home. Uh, and that was the way to spend your Saturday afternoons well. And it was true. And sometimes I was carried along. And in the, the winter, really good speakers would be brought to the center of Birmingham to a big place and it would be full. And again, you would have biblical exposition. I heard F.F. F. Bruce there, probably the greatest evangelical scholar of the 20th century, or one of them, certainly Old Testament scholar. Uh, if you haven't got his book, uh, The Spreading Flame, uh, that's a lovely book to start you thinking about how God works after the end of the Gospels. Because most evangelicals seem to behave as though Everything was completed by the end of the Acts of the Apostles and nothing happened till about the 18th century. Well, that's not true. F.F. Uh, uh, Bruce can get you going on that. And then you'll want some more and you'll find it and you'll end up with people like N.T. Wright. Um, we have such a rich heritage. 
And I can still remember F.F. Bruce. That's what people who've given the talent God had back to him are like. One of my favorite writers is a man called Fenelon, who was the greatest pope the Catholic Church never had. Um, because when he should have been pope, another man who was much more ambitious, Fenelon was not ambitious, he wished to serve, uh, became pope. He was reasonable as popes go, uh, but Fenelon just said, well, it's not for me. And he went back to his bishopric and ran that. He, he was amazing. And his letters have been published. There's quite a lot of his books there. Uh, one of the f famous evangelical preachers of the early part of the 20th century, it was his number one read, but he said, I could never tell my church because they wouldn't understand because anti-Catholicism at that time was so, so endemic that uh, there was hatred, actually. Uh, that's one of the really good things that's happened in my life is to spread across the whole spectrum of those who believe, certainly among scholars, uh, where you meet in an environment where you're discussing something and in a small group, you can recognize your brother very quickly and then you find out much later which bit of the church he belongs to. So Fenelon, in one of his letters, is responding to uh, uh, a man who's talking about giftedness and how it works. And he says this, he says, there is no gift which the Lord gives us that he does not usually at some time or other have to take away from us. He does not take it away from us permanently, but simply to remove the evil sense of ownership. Then he can return the gift and it will be used properly. And that is so true. It's a frightening thought though, isn't it? The evil sense of ownership. But the young are absolutely entitlement. It's rampant, isn't it? Here's a way to take somebody who was, was brought in to civilize one of the future, uh, um, what they call them, leaders of France anyway. And he did it. Uh, it wasn't too successful ex except that he made the, the boy manageable uh, because he was loving and he was very, very clever. Uh, one of my favorite books. I, I don't know whether I even put it on my book list because some people wouldn't understand yet. They have to wait to heaven till they find out. Um, so that's important. Uh, what I learned at that stage uh, uh, when I was asking lots of questions, and I remember someone reading 1 Timothy 3 in church. And my classifying mind said, one of those things doesn't fit. 1 Timothy 3 is the criteria for leadership in the church, right? What does Paul says, say are the characteristics that are required for leadership in the church? Humility. Hmm? That's one of them, yeah, but you can classify them all. They are, in fact, character traits, not skills. The one that bothered me, of course, was apt to teach because I didn't put enough emphasis on the apt. That's why the faculty of education is a disaster because you cannot teach people to teach because it is the conjunction of two loves. You must love the pupil and you must love the subject. Then you can't stop yourself teaching and people will actually stimulate you to do it. So the products of the Faculty of Education are about 90% people who like children but don't enjoy learning and so they're suckers for all the nonsense that's going on now. Every now and again you meet the odd teacher who loves your child and the subject and they will learn some French or mathematics or whatever it is. The other ones will just tell silly stories about the things your children said and you will not notice that they haven't learned anything. Uh, we should get rid of the faculty of education and the requirements should be, do you love the people you want to teach? Let me see you do it. My oldest daughter, the missionary, 
would not be allowed to teach in Canada because she didn't go to teacher's college. But she can get almost any child to get a tune out of a wind instrument within half an hour. Uh, persuading, showing, whatever. That's, that's the basis of a teacher. Love the, love the pupil, love the subject, and you don't get exhausted. I mean, I'm going to be exhausted after this weekend, as Sally will say, you'll be a zombie for two days. That's, and I say, well, that's a relief for you, isn't it? Uh, my third daughter says, I'm going to look after you when you're old, and I'm going to win every argument with you every day. <laughs> I say... The good Lord may release me before that. Yeah, but so what I learned then is the distinction between skills and real and wisdom. The leadership of the church is wise character. You don't when you need somebody else to look after the money in the church, you don't want an accountant or a banker. You hire them to run the accounts. But it's people who know the Lord who will make better decisions as to how the money should be spent. And they may even be illiterate. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Probably the best sermon I ever heard in my life, certainly in the sense that I can remember it accurately, was very short. And it was by a man who didn't preach. But those of you who don't know anything about the brethren, their main service of the week is the Lord's Supper. Last about an hour and a half in most churches. It's un allegedly unplanned, but of course, to some degree, it is planned. But, and, but themes do emerge in remarkable ways. And this was one such Sunday. And it, the theme was how subjectively Christ comes into our lives. They, they wouldn't have put it that way because they were just reading passages of Scripture and they were fitting it together. But then this man, who was the brother of one of the sisters, and he was a gardener from Devon, which is one of the most beautiful counties in England and certainly one of the nicest climates. And he lived in a little village there. And he simply got up and he read that verse, he shall come down like showers upon the new mown hay. And then with tears running down his face, he said, I'm a gardener in Devon. And when the hay is cut, the smell is everywhere in the village. And I think, Jesus is like that. And he sat down. You can't beat that. Um, we all have bits of our life that are like that. Um, but we've got to allow them to come out. And not be so obsessed with whether whether we're doing it the right way or whether we've had the right training. The church is not concerned with those things, particularly as the university continues its decay. Leadership is character. Which brings me to the next bit of my... How many more minutes have I got left, Alan? What time do you say I've got to finish? Ten? Yeah, you can go over a little bit over ten. Okay, uh, I'll try, I'll try. Um, because character is critical. And it, it was astonishing to me when I realized that our Lord's first sermon is entirely about character. The Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as it came to life for me, as my life text via the students, it was astonishing. This is the, this is the first preaching that we know of by Jesus. And Matthew writes it down. I think it's actually Matthew's conversion story. Uh, my artistic license, if I may be allowed to use it, I imagine that Matthew, in his job as an extractor of taxes and distorter of tax burdens, had ripped Jesus off. As a carpenter, the family would poor. The family would need some extra money every now and again, so he'd make something and take it to the market and sell it but he'd have to pass Matthew. And Matthew overcharged him. And Matthew didn't care because he was used to being sworn at and everything else, but of course Jesus didn't do that. He looked at him with pity. 
And that had never happened to Matthew before. So he couldn't forget it. And when he heard that a little later this man who had pitied him was a traveling rabbi and was doing miracles, there was no way he was not going to go and see what was going on. And I like to imagine him hearing that Jesus was a village or two over and getting up early to go there and saying to his assistants, you can rip the world off today, I'm off. Uh, but he got there a bit late. And when he got to the village where lots of people had been cured on the previous evening, he said, where is he? And they pointed, just over there, up the hill. And I like to imagine him arriving breathless. Here's a man who is profoundly discontented and who is materially very successful. And the first words he hears are, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, any scholar looking at the Beatitudes knows that these are uh, technically aphorisms and they have to be expounded. They're not self-explanatory at first sight. We, we can make a stab at that because we've got all sorts of tacit knowledge in the background. So the question, as I began to realize as I, as the Sermon on the Mount started working on me, that I had to use the talents God had given me to understand what was going on and do a lot of reading and thinking. It took months, years, it's still going on and, and it, it still grows. Uh, every time I talk about it, something new pops up for me as well as you. It's, it really is quite astonishing because it is that rich. But you, you make the next step by knowing the scriptures enough to be able to compare scripture with scripture. And so I, I began to understand the first step in the Christian character as a genuine and daily recognition of our innate sinfulness. When you're saved, you don't become sin free. You become forgiven. But the sins are given to you to work on for the rest of your life. Well, I don't believe we get to the last bit till heaven. Um, so the real beginning of a Christian character is that that insight is central to your life. Uh, amazing, but incredibly liberating in the long run. And look at the consequence. What Jesus is saying, and my friend John Robson is a wonderful example of this, whom I never tried to convert, and... Uh, 20 years of having dinner together or lunch together, he made it to the faith because he was brilliant. I didn't want him. Shake him. Trilingual PhD in history, you know, good guy. You should have him as speaker at some time. He's very, he's amusing and he's clever. But Jesus says, the moment you see that fact that you are deeply and permanently flawed, you are telling the truth about yourself and the kingdom is yours. The entrance key to the kingdom is truth-telling about yourself, to yourself. And then he goes on and says, but that isn't enough. Blessed are those who mourn, for they are the ones who are comforted. They all connect. The, the sequence is actually totally logical. I'm not going to do it all, obviously. I will stop with this one. But what did he mean this time? In what way are those that mourn connected, first of all, to poverty of spirit? He said, not enough to see the truth about yourself. Now you must repent. And lo and behold, can we do that? No. When you annoy your spouse, you can say sorry, but does that mean you've repented? No. Not really. It's for your own sake you're saying it, not for theirs. My wife, who's quite insightful, will uh, get me on these things. I will have said something that I wasn't even aware of and the, the emotional temperature will have dropped, you know. Uh, I realize something's gone wrong somewhere, so I'll say, sorry. And she says, no, you're not. You haven't even stopped reading. And she's quite right, of course. Repentance is not something we can do, which is hard to face. Uh, the verse that brought this home to me was uh, the first coming of the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, when you're concerned about words and you're not like Connor, uh, able to read them in Greek and Hebrew, 
the Revised Standard Version, an old edition from a second-hand bookshop is safer because it hasn't been got at, uh, is the best place to go because they weren't trying to tell you what it means, they were trying to be accurate translators. And Luke is a very good writer. And when Peter goes back after Cornelius and his family get saved, after he, first of all, he has to be bullied by the dream and he doesn't want to go. And then when he goes to make it worse, everybody gets saved on the spot and touched by the Holy Spirit. I don't think Peter enjoyed that, not initially, because he was immediately thinking, what am I going to say to the guys in Jerusalem, the old Jews? They're not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. But he had to go. And Luke, for me anyway, in a single phrase, captures it. I can see it in my mind's eye. He tells his story and then the old Jews look at one another and one of them says, then I guess God has given the gift of repentance to the Gentiles too. The gift of repentance. And it's a gift that has to be sought and asked for. You will get it. You'll know when not only do you repent, but you cry. Uh, and our church will become very different when that's a normal process. But most of you go to churches where there's no public repentance for sin, even in a modest way. Um, it's the ticket for the entrance into the presence of God. Lewis puts it, God could, you think, allow you into his presence easily, but no. He says repentance is not something that he demands that he could forego if he wishes. Repentance is simply the description of what coming into the presence of God is like. It's the entry ticket. And if you don't believe me, read Isaiah in the temple till you get the message. Isaiah was probably the most holy and righteous man in Israel at the time, but he ended up flat on his face. So did John on Patmos. So if you haven't fell flat on your face, yeah, not physically, but uh, metaphorically, you haven't really understood. I have to leave it there. Um, but you can listen to the whole thing. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount now takes me two hours. Uh, it grew to about an hour in a year or two. And CMDA played a role in this because the very first time I spoke, I did a, a CMDA conference without any CMDA staff there, actually, on my own at the, which is what I prefer, of course. No, not, it, Alan accepted, of course. No, that's not true. <laughs> I like them around because they make all the things that I forget to do happen. But on this occasion, I forget who was supposed to be there, but they couldn't come. So that's fine. My first visit to the Billy Graham Center. And uh, I finish by reciting, in paraphrase, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, all three chapters, because when you start taking these things seriously shortly, you don't need the text in front of you. And this was the first time I'd done it. And I was stunned. It's the most exhausting thing I do. Uh, I feel utterly spent after it quite frequently. And I did on this occasion. Uh, but I wasn't prepared for what happened next. Nobody moved for several minutes. And then we all left the room silently. And a few hours later, a doctor who subsequently became a good friend and sent his son to us at Augustine pushed a note under my door and it said, I went to my room and I wept. Thank you. Um, we become different people when that happens. Uh, and it needs to go on happening. Uh, so that's character. Now the, the last bit is very quick and I will stop. But there's some practical things you need to do. Your ch all churches ought to have a power of attorney program uh, for end of life because your family may think they want to do it, but you've all seen who is it that demands all the possible treatment when somebody's dying? It's the son or daughter who hasn't seen mom or dad for months or years. They're working out their own guilt. None of us have treated our loved ones as well as we should have done. So we all have some guilt to deal with at the end of our lives. 
so we shouldn't be allowed to determine how our parents die. We should be there so that we could veto something that's clearly wrong. But what you want is a power of attorney given to people who share your faith, but are not emotionally tied up in this thing in the same way. I, um, the, my ideal trio would be a lawyer, a doctor, and someone like my wife who won't take no from any bureaucrat if they're trying to do bureaucratic things. You can walk into an intensive care unit. How, how much work, the investigation goes on in uh, the intensive care unit for the benefits of lawyers or our benefit against lawyers? It's a lot, isn't it? And so many people are dying in the way they do because the doctor's afraid of what might happen if they don't. If everything hasn't been done, there are some people who will litigate because everything wasn't done. So when people arrive with due power of attorney and they take the responsibility, the people running ICU will understand very quickly and say, fine. And what you're going to say, of course, is this person is at peace with God uh, and ready to go home. And the last place to do that is not here. At the very least, we should get all those tubes out and get her or him to a single room where the family can be with them at the end. Better still, we can get them into an ambulance and get them home. It doesn't matter if they die three hours later. If that, if that seems possible, do it. And the results are spectacularly good. So a power of attorney in your church, given for your ending, is a wonderful service. You will get people coming to the church, your elderly, for that service when they hear it's there. Your church will grow. Uh, there are so many things that could be done within the church, and we're going to need to because of what's happening to government. They want to take everything over. We have to take as much back as we can. Uh, just take one other example that, that, that I think should be done. Of course, I never do any of these things. I haven't even got my will done yet. So, you know, uh, but my wife is on the case, so it will get done uh, quite shortly. Um, the other one is I look at the young and I think about cars. In your church, if you did an inventory of the value of the cars that are attached to the church, so to speak, owned, how many of them are now driven for less than a half an hour a week or so and not enjoyed when they're being driven either? It will come to all of you in due course unless you die before that stage. Uh, I measure my visual accuracy in parking a car with the tire exactly where I want it, and it's not as good as it used to be. Uh, we have silly old age tests and not the ones we should have. There ought to be a virtual test of your driving abilities, and it could be anonymous, you know. Sorry, you can only drive in daylight. Sorry, only before 4.30 in the afternoon. That, we should have the equivalent of the license as you come in, uh, another one to go out. And there should be a certain hour of the day when the elderly can have some sort of sign on the outside and everybody has to look after them. We could lead the way in this kind of civility. But you've got young people who are lounging around with nothing to do and getting into bad habits. Churches at least could set up a program whereby you bought a, a bus and a taxi and the old people, instead of having, especially in Canada in winter, having to get their car out, could call the church and say, we'll pick you up. They take you all the way to the door so you don't walk over any ice and say, call us when you're done and we'll pick you up. You'll get to know one another. You'll probably start to love them and help them get their lives in line. It, it will build relationship and fellowship again. And we need to be more inventive in this area. Certainly, we're going to need to take certain aspects of medicine into the church again because they won't allow us to do it elsewhere. You can't deal with the problems of aging by checking a box and getting certain things done within 15 minutes, right? And that's simply not possible. So we started this. We started the universities. We started medicine in the modern sense. It's all Christian. We need to take it back. And uh, the elderly in particular would be much better off having an informal clinic where no money changes hands. They can't do much about that. 
uh, where they can discuss their problem with a doctor who's also a brother or a sister. And in many cases, make the decision, as we, Sally and I, made over COVID. No way we go to ICU uh, because we can't trust the people there. We can have an oxygen cylinder. That's no problem if necessary. But if the good Lord wants to take us, so be it. That's fine. We will be together. We need to be more assertive in this particular, these particular sorts of areas. So start thinking about them. Now, finally, of course, I've saved this for my own... Uh, particular interests, and you, I hope you'll forgive me. But I am most concerned, of course, about the education of the young. Uh, it is going downhill steadily, and it's been doing it for the whole of my lifetime. When I think of the education I had, the young couldn't conceive of it. Even in medical school, it was something they couldn't conceive of. I took several of my teachers rock climbing. If you've had your teacher and your boss on the end of a rope on Saturday, it changes the relationship on Monday. Uh, and they cared about us. My first boss was totally paternalistic. He took my life in hand. He wasn't a Christian, but he liked working class boys. And, so, and it was a much coveted job because he was a superb inter internist. Uh, and he also liked being at the the working class end of the, this teaching hospital because the patients are more interesting. He was known to send a patient in for me and he, he wouldn't write in the notes. He said, John, it's TLC and a bottle of beer every night. You could actually uh, prescribe a bottle of beer in those days. He'd be an old man who was not doing well as a widow, you know, a widower, and he'd get a week's TLC from the nurses and a bottle of beer every night. He was that kind of man. He was very wealthy too. He owned a the biggest port, the drink importing company in, uh, in England. Uh, on Christmas Day, he got up so that when I got up in the morning in my pigeonhole, there was a check for 50 pounds. Uh, he said, coming out into the, uh, the slums, you don't get the, the perks of Hyde Park Corner. Uh, a few months later, when I was finishing my surgical rotation and I was free, you had to do a year, uh, he saw me in the corridor and he said, what are you doing next? And I said, oh, I'm just about to sign up to go on a world cruise as a ship's doctor. He said, you're not doing that. I mean, this is paternalism of the very best form. Uh, as I now recognize, he said, I think you, I can arrange, you can go and do neurology in Oxford, but I'm not going to let you use your mind, lose your, you, waste your mind. He also said, and don't marry anybody who can't argue with you. <laughs> uh, you couldn't do that today, but it was good, wasn't it? Uh, that world is gone, and so the church has got to start picking up those loose ends. Kids actually need arranged marriages, at least in the sense that uh, they realize talking to people who've been there and done that, so to speak, uh, I could say, no, don't do that. Uh, you're not actually made for one another. You're just infatuated at the moment. Um, so, education. Uh, I watched it decay steadily over the whole of my lifetime until uh, the 1987. I'd been seven years in North America at that time. And... Uh, I was bullied into going to Africa. And that's where I read Bloom's Closing the American Mind, where he talks about this decay, that America is not producing what it used to produce. So that he, he says, I can't teach students who don't understand the metaphors of, the, of English literature. He's a, an unbelieving Jew, but he wanted them to know the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, because we only talk to one another in metaphors when we talk well. And if we don't recognize where they come from, we've not been educated. I couldn't believe it was as bad as he said, but it got on my mind all that year I was in Africa. And when I got back at the end of a lecture or in a lecture on biochemistry of all things, I somehow managed to say to these uh, first year students in medical school who'd been stroked and told how brilliant they were in every previous lecture, 
that if Bloom is right, you're a bunch of ignoramuses. Uh, now, nowadays, if you said that, there'd be screams from the hissy fit girls, you know, but um, uh, not then. Uh, they at least had the courtesy to wait till the end of the lecture, and about 20 of them came and demanded an apology. And I said, no, I'm not going to apologize. I'm merely quoting, perhaps a little rudely, uh, uh, Alan Bloom. But why don't we do the experiment? We're an ex quasi-experimental faculty. And they said, what do you mean? I, well, I said, Alan Bloom thinks that if you don't know the Bible well enough to recognize the metaphors, you're an ignoramus. Um, you all think Gandhi's a great guy, and he said the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest teaching that the world has ever seen. Tell me how it starts and what it says. Nothing, absolutely zip. And I said, well, there you are, he's right. Sorry, and I turned to walk away and they said, what are you gonna do about it? I said, it's your problem, not mine, I'm busy. They said, you claim to know something we ought to know, why wouldn't you teach us? I said, well, it wouldn't be allowed into the, uh, the medical course. Well, teach us, will you teach us outside it? And I said, well, what you need is an Agnostics Anonymous group because you don't even know what the questions are, let alone the answers. Uh, and they said, yes, that's right. So AA was born on the spot, <laughs> but it was Agnostics Anonymous. And the only prerequisite was that you couldn't claim to be a Christian. And I got quarter of the class every year. And I set out to prove to them that objective moral truth must exist. And they thought, you're not going to win that. And of course, every year I did. <laughs> only one became a Christian that I knew of immediately, but they all went away realizing that Christianity was not a mugs option, it was a serious option. Uh, and it has had an impact over the years, but it had a much greater impact on me because I went away and realized I couldn't pass my own test. I, I knew something of the Sermon on the Mount, but at that time it was just a collection of sayings. How wrong I was, so I had to repent. And I was given that repentance and it just changed my life. Uh, I get emails about the Sermon on the Mount almost monthly. Uh, and I say, I'm glad it's doing to you what it did to me. Uh, I take no responsibility for it. It was entirely a gift. But it now takes two CDs to, to get through it. Because you begin to see how that connects to that and that connects. The book of James is a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. There's an example. And I must stop because Alan stood up. <laughs> Let me finish with one of my favorite uh, quotations from the 12th century, one of the things that led to Augustine College. And I would like you to go to the Augustine website. And I would like you to give to the American friends of Augustine College, the, the American docs who have sent their kids to us, have got charitable status in the US so you can get a tax deduction, but it's got to be cloned to every university town. Uh, Reno, the editor of uh, First Things said to me at dinner in New York not long ago, I think you've stumbled on the Christian solution because you only need four teachers plus others that you'll find in any church. Uh, and you can do it out of a church basement and if it's a decent church, they won't even charge you. Uh, you need to get them together and they'll need to read for three or four years together before they try teaching. We, we did that at two, we tried too quickly in uh, our first attempt in the States in Blacksburg, Virginia, and it didn't work because there wasn't enough time. You've got to read together and then you've got to talk to homeschooling mums and dads and the ideas have to percolate for a year or two and then it will go. And it, is, it has been the most satisfying pedagogic experience we have. Now, the other problem we have, and this is a big ask, uh, but when doctors think about things and say, we'll do it, you have both the money and the drive to do it. All the Ivy League schools are now taking homeschooled Christian kids and bending their own rules to get them because they're educated to some degree, not as far as they think they are, but they made a good start. But that means, and they, they maliciously say they won't hold the scholarship. Of course they would, but it's very hard for the kids to believe that. 
And so they're not coming to us as they should. What we need to be able to say is we can give this year's education for free. Uh, but that means it's, it costs, you can do the whole thing, including uh, board and lodging for about, in Canada for about $15,000. So and you, you get your first year at university, not in the usual way. So it's actually a good deal, but much more important. You go from a 20% probability of ending up a Christian at the end of your training to a 70%. That ought to be enough to have Christian parents knocking on the door demanding that their child come in, but it hasn't happened that way. That's because we're no good at advertising, I imagine, but uh, we need a fund that can run that scholarship program so that it's not confined to Augustine College, Ottawa. I, I, wanna, I, I hope to see at least half a dozen of them before I die. And it does get you first year university. You will never get credit from the education. They do everything they can to block you. But people who teach in university still like good students. Last year, for instance, no, the year before, we had a, a Catholic girl who came because her mom had homeschooled her and was worried, doing her homework. And the more she learned about schools and visited them and asked per perceptive questions, she didn't want her daughter to go there especially places like Harvard, all the Ivy Leagues, they've gone woke. Uh, and then she was talking to a, a woman at a homeschooling group and this woman said, well, I heard a guy called Dr. Patrick from uh, Ottawa talking about a program they have there. That might interest you. And she tracked us down and the girl came. She turned out actually to be the best student of the year and talked to her parents and introduced them to the college down the road in Michigan, Hillsdale, uh, who don't know about us yet. Uh, they're beginning to. And I said to her, that would be a good place. And so that's where she went. I said, don't try and get any credits immediately because they don't know us uh, and we don't have official accreditation. Simply sign up for the classes, including what you most enjoyed with us and wait a week or two till you get an assignment and then go and talk to the professor they gave her more than a year's credits for what she'd already done when they realized the quality of it. And that's happened. It even happened in the University of Chicago, where once you get to the interview and beyond the bureaucratic barrier, a girl who had no certificates of any sort because she had done homeschooling and us was given all the arts credits she needed for pre-med so that she could continue to learn Russian. Uh, we get good students, obviously, this, this, this selection, and many of them are terrified. I think uh, friends from uh, have gone already, so I can tell this story more easily. But uh, mum said to me at uh, graduation, well, I read every one of David's essays because he sent them to me uh, before he gave them in. Uh, she'd homeschooled and he was worried. And she said, I did not believe that you could change the way a child would write so dramatically in so short a time because they don't learn to write at school and we insist on learning to write. Uh, you have to be able to write an essay that we can see that we don't have to do spelling and punctuation but uh, from then on you can forget what you got out of well you don't get that in many public schools now. So please think of us because COVID closed us down completely uh, and the children have been flattened, so the, the kind of young person we want will now be aged 20, 20 or something like that. The best outcomes have always been those that took a break. We had one medical student from Arizona who realized things were bad, and she found us on the web, and she was in medical school with a year to go. And I said, go and talk to the dean. They'll let you come. They always do, because students are burning out in medical school. And that doesn't look good on the dean's transcript. So all you have to say is there are a lot of questions in medicine now that are not medical. And I found a place where I can think of, be taught and think about them. And I say, go. I've never, I've never had a student who, a medical student who didn't get an okay. And we've had about oh, half a dozen over the years. One came all the way from Finland and got the government to pay the whole bill. We've had a psychiatrist from Norway. Uh, we've had amazing people, but not too many Americans. Uh, you get on this work track, you need to take a year off, eight months off. Uh, 
the oldest student to take the course so far was 45. Uh, she came from Australia via an email to me. She said, you have no idea what you did to me when you spoke in Queensland, but I have found everything of yours and Father Spitzer's that I can, and I want to come and take your course. Can I? I'm divorced, but I am in charge of the, uh, for 1,200 high school students for getting them organized for the next step of their life, and I think you can help me. She went back via two years mission work in, in Nepal and loved it. Uh, I mean, any of your young people who are being burned out by the, the atmosphere of the university, say, take a break for a year. Raid the piggy bank, whatever's necessary, you won't regret it. Uh, and then they'll come back and help you to get it started locally. Because if we don't redeem the Christian mind, the Christian church will die. The whole of the New Testament after salvation is about growing your mind so that he can accurately portray what Christ wants us to portray. But the bottom line for you is go and tell what the Lord has done for you. And if the answer is nothing, that's what you have to say. At least you'll then say, I'm a Christian, but I acknowledge there's not too much evidence, which is what I had to say first, and it will change. God bless you all. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. If you guys are enjoying this, please subscribe. Share it with a friend. If you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe there as well. If you guys have questions, feel free to ask that by going to the link in the description down below or going to www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask. Thank you guys, and we'll see you next week.